2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan LeBell at Saint Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Nicholas Carnes and Dr. Lily Goren to discuss their new book, "The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe," published by the University Press of Kansas as part of their Politics and Popular Culture series in 2023. The relationship between politics and pop culture is not a one-way street. Popular texts encourage audiences to imagine worlds different from their own. Questioning their current political worlds is at the heart of speculative fiction. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is, our authors say, a cultural leviathan with numerous interconnected movies, streaming series on Disney+, and an increasingly diverse cast of superheroes. The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe brings together over 25 scholars with diverse specialties and methodologies to analyze how the MCU narrates, reproduces, mirrors, and impacts political and social ideas. Dr. Carnes and Dr. Gorin break the book into three main parts, focusing on political origin stories, use and abuse of political power, and evolving diversity in the bodies of the heroes, villains, and victims. The contributors interrogate how the MCU engages and affects political society using language accessible to MCU fans and providing contributions to research in various subfields of political science. Nicholas Carnes is professor of public policy and sociology at Duke University. His publications include The Cash Ceiling, Why Only the Rich Run for Office and What We Can Do About It, published by Princeton University Press in 2018, and White Collar Government. The Hidden Role of Class in Economic Policymaking, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2013. Lily J. Gorin is a professor of political science and global studies at Carroll University and, many of you know, co-host of New Books in Political Science. Her publications include co-editing Mad Men and Politics, Nostalgia and the Remaking of Modern America from Bloomsbury Publishers in 2015, and Women in the White House, Gender, Popular Culture, and Presidential public, Politics, published by the University Press of Kentucky in 2012. Nick, I'm delighted to welcome you to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Lily, I'm thrilled to have you on the other side of the microphone rather than the
3: host of New Books and Political Science. It's a new position for me. I'm very excited. So many
1: listeners come to this conversation already convinced that popular culture cannot be set aside in the study of politics, but others are more skeptical of calling MCU a set of canonical texts. Uh, You write in the book that entertainment media is itself a site where politically relevant messages are sent and received. Pop culture is itself an arena of contemporary politics. So let's start by you laying out Why films and TV shows are political texts and how they influence viewers in, you know, overt and covert ways. Lily, you want to start us off?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've been looking at popular culture, particularly television and film, which have narratives um, generally speaking, embedded in them uh, as a, as a place and as a site where we understand ourselves as um, sort of cultural beings, and where we receive oftentimes receive messages, either covert or overt, uh, with regard to an understanding of ourselves in society. Um, and of course, uh, if we're looking at something like the MCU or the television show Mad Men or um any number of narratives that are seen um on television or in film this is not the first time that that anybody has looked at popular culture as a means of understanding certainly somebody like shakespeare was in fact a popular culture venue way back in the 1600s um and of course we can go all the way back to you know sort of our greek friends or our um japanese friends to look at ancient plays um, that essentially told stories. Um, And so anytime you're telling a story, you're communicating an idea about politics, about society, about human interaction. Um, And those have the capacity not only to reflect back our understandings of ourselves, but certainly also to communicate with us about maybe some of the things that we think about on a daily basis. Um, And so I see a lot of um our understanding of ourselves through popular culture. Uh, and and there are also particular ways that say feminist and feminist thought have used and built into popular culture understandings um, of gender dynamics, of sexuality, um, and have used these texts again as the means for thinking about um, a lot of those questions. Uh, so that's a sort of broad global answer to that question, I guess. <laughs>
1: No, that's terrific. And uh and in the introduction you talk about art affecting life and life affecting art and, and and before we move to the MCU can you just give a brief example of what you mean by that about how this moves in these two different directions?
3: Uh yeah, that you know again we sort of look at these films as films. You go to the movie theater, they're big, they're spectacle, there's always generally speaking a huge fight scene um but at the same time that you sort of are sitting there understanding how those things fit together. Um, and you see in, in, in a certain sense, you walk into Thor Ragnarok say, um, and understand and and think about, um, how, how a citizenry, um, is, is sort of captured into a place, um, Asgard. Uh, and then as Asgard falls apart, how those citizens themselves, are a group without a state, um, and this is, you know, something that we talk about all the time in terms of these days political science and statelessness um and and how those things are woven together and so again it's not necessarily something that somebody thinks about like oh statelessness i see this in asgard but these notions and ideas are communicated in these ways uh and and so you sort of have the back and forth with regard to these concepts just in that particular um instance or i often talk about the first season of jessica jones being a meditation on the concept of rape um and you know Any episode of the season one of Jessica Jones really takes you into what it means to have your autonomy violated, um, your bodily autonomy, your mental, your physical autonomy by somebody else. Um, and, and sort of, this is a translation of this concept of what rape is. Um, so those are just a couple of examples of, you know, sort of art affecting life and life affecting art.
1: Fabulous. Um, Nick, is, is the MCU today's Shakespeare? Is that, is that, what, you're, are that what you're arguing? Like, why, why the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Like, why I, this set of texts in 2023?
2: That's right. I always say Kevin Feige is, is a modern-day William Shakespeare. Uh, no, we, we look at uh, the MCU in part because it is, you know, in a way, um, one of the big contributions of American popular culture right now two I think global conversations full stop it's uh, um, um, MCU movies play in almost every country in the world um, MCU movies uh, are eight of the 25 highest grossing films of all time and MCR movie MCU movies are something that is I should say MCU movies and shows are something that's I think unprecedented in cinema in that there are Thirty-one interconnected films that all share a single fictional plotline. I was just talking to a colleague yesterday who didn't realize that. He said, "Oh, um, you know, he's not an MCU fan," and I didn't realize every single one of these is happening in the same fictional universe. And then when you add on the, you know, now close to a dozen um, Disney Plus streaming shows um, uh, and holiday specials, tie-in comic books. And then the Marvel television shows, which we still don't – which appeared on places like Netflix and on broadcast TV, which we still don't quite know whether they fit into the fictional story. It's a massive fictional undertaking. Um, It's wildly popular with fans. You know, if you go into the – I like to – when I pick my daughter up from daycare, um, every day I just do a little scan. How many Marvel characters do I see on the playground? Represented in apparel, backpacks. Parents' clothes. So, so this is uh, it's a it's a one of a kind fictional product. It permeates our lives in all sorts of interesting ways. And so that's really actually what brought me to the study of popular cultures. I said this thing is just so big. Um, I want to better understand the politics of it.
1: Uh, it's funny, Nick, because in the book you do such a good idea of sort of separating the fact that you don't have to go into the theater or turn on your television to actually be part of this. And and I think that uh people like your colleague, maybe people like me, who've seen a bunch of films and uh, as I'm reading this book, realize like, really? The this one that I saw is supposed to be related to Thor and and to understand that this is in fact interrelated in this way. So this is not, these are not random messages. They 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 need to be seen together. So I, I love that public um Uh, public issue that you're not choosing. You see them whether you choose it um, or not. In the book, Nick, you talk a little bit about the loyalty of the fans and you've alluded to that loyalty, but is there something specific about the way that fan loyalty plays itself out that you find important to thinking about the politics of MCU? I
2: would just say one point, which we talk about briefly in the introduction to the book, is that the interconnected storytelling I think creates a really interesting kind of fan base, the completionists, the people who have to watch each new show or film just so they can stay up to date on the entire fictional enterprise. Um, and so I do think that you know Marvel Studios has cultivated um, people like me. I'm going to go watch every film in the theater so that I don't see spoilers. I'm going to watch every show when it airs on Disney+, Plus so that I don't accidentally find out a plot point on Facebook or Twitter. Um, I think that's an interesting kind of fandom, but I, I, we also want to, you know, I think, pay attention to this because of the casual fans, the people who might see a film here or there, um, you know, these movies are reaching really, really big audiences. So it's not just the diehard uh, uh, MCU fans like me, these messages, the political messages these films are, are reaching a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of people.
1: Um, Nick. Said that this is part of a global conversation, and though the book is really focused more on American politics and political theory, it seems like somebody could write a book like this, um, thinking about how does this affect politics in China or India or or Brazil. And I, I'm wondering uh, in this, in terms of this global conversation, if you two know whether or not political scientists in uh, and other scholars are in fact producing this kind of work or is this book sort of unique in that way?
3: Um, I'm going to jump in here because we are in fact working on volume two and we're working on volume two with a colleague who reached out to us um, from Germany and he's now in the Netherlands um, <clears throat> because again, this this topic spoke to him and the kind of research that he's doing and he really wanted to sort of cultivate a um, a survey that got us more information. So there are four of us now working on this big survey to try to get at some of these questions that are not necessarily just specific to the United States. Um, and we also understand, and we we recently had a a book review note that there is a, a sort of uh, a lightness with regard to international relations involved in this particular volume, and that is definitely something that we will be correcting um, in the next one. Uh, but but again, there are aspects of this of the the whole enterprise that is designed to make it. Um, acceptable, palatable, and attractive to other countries. And so I'm going to hand this over to Nick and let him get into some of those um, details about how, say, Dr. Strange um, was, you know, recrafted a little bit. So and I'm- before
1: he does, I just want to say that, um, Nick, when you were talking about global conversations earlier you know, it, it really occurs to me in the book, you, you're always pointing out the implications of those global uh, conversations. And it's not just positive that there there are casualties, and it creates limitations. So with, with that, I'm going to pass it over.
2: That's right. Um, I don't want uh, people to think just because I'm a diehard fan, that this is a book that is only by and for diehard fans. It's not. This is a book that uh, tries to take a, a careful, balanced look at the MCU. Some of our, you know, chapters and authors um, point out what we might think of as sort of, you know, beneficial or positive messages that are being conveyed by MCU films. Others point out limitations, even criticisms of what the M- MCU is teaching people about politics and society. Um, and and you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, one of the sort of joys of being a fan is. Uh, having the heavy debates with people about the pros and cons, uh, not just which character or story is your favorite, um but whether you know some characters and stories convey better messages than others. so so, uh, and to to Lily's point, you know, one of the big criticisms of Marvel Studios that you'll hear, you know, in popular commentary is in pursuit of you know, sort of bigger and bigger audiences, they often kind of sanitize political issues or stay away from, um, even engaging in you know issues or conversations that might be divisive that might alienate you know some potential consumers, um, and and so Lily's reference you know Lily's reference to Doctor Strange is sort of an apt one. So in the comics, Doctor Strange's uh, the sanctuary where he's trained is in Tibet. In the Marvel Studios adaptation, uh, Kamartaj, this this training ground um, is set in Nepal to avoid basically getting into questions of censorship in China. China's one of the biggest markets on the planet for U.S. cinema, for cinema writ large. And so this is that that's sort of a, a really straightforward, really easy example of how uh, real-world politics is shaping the creative process for Marvel Studios. And some people might say, you know, that's a problem for me.
1: No, and it's interesting. I, I didn't read that review because I never read reviews before doing this podcast, but... It seems to me that you are very careful to say this is about American politics and that you're only looking in a sort of a smaller pool, not talking about the impact worldwide. And I would say the way it would be better to phrase is that is that maybe issues of foreign policy for the United States. Um, could, there's more to be said based on what has been said in volume one in another volume in terms of, and and we'll talk about this when we talk about Nick's piece as to how we think about government, government's roles, what government does and what MCU is projecting there. Um, this book interrogates Marvel's environments, uh, the politics, the culture, the social, and also origin stories. But, you know, as a text, this book itself, which, um, was hatched during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, its own origins can't be disconnected from disruption and uh, changes in environments, and it also benefited from social media. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the origin story of this book and also your partnership, because you didn't know each other at all before um, be-
3: b- before the idea. <laughs> Nick, I'm going to let you start out.
2: (laughs) I think the origin of this book reminds me of a joke I often heard during the pandemic. I I think it was an Onion headline. It was, uh, uh, Professor Happy Hour Dangerously Close to Becoming a Podcast. Um. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the idea, you know, you get a bunch of academics who are interested in the same topic and get them having a conversation and eventually it grows into something substantial, something institutional. And I think that's what happened here. Um, it started with a conversation me and Lily and a few others on Twitter talking about. Um, I believe it was that scene. Lily, am I, am I right in remembering? It was. Uh... I,
3: I think the Twitter thread was was two threads together. It was that scene at the end of um, Endgame where all the women are arrayed um, to to save the day, and you know it was amazingly tokenized. Um, but it was also the fact that. Uh, Endgame made over a billion dollars in five days, which kind of is you know, mind boggling. Um, and again, this was, you know, just before the pandemic started. And so these conversations were sort of going on in by a, a number of us on Twitter um, before Elon Musk. Um, and and so, you know, we we're sort of like somebody piped up and said, who wants to do a book on politics in the MCU? Um, and Nick and I, who did not know each other, <laughs> um sort of where like people were tipping their hats at us a bit and we um put it together
2: yeah we we started with a a, a happy hour gathering at the next big conference and the energy was just palpable. uh people were really excited about this project and so um um you know Lily, I, I maintain, was always the brains of the operation. I was uh, uh, just happy to carry some of the water, um, and and so we just kept nudging our wonderful colleagues along. Hey, will you do a mini conference in a few months? Um, hey, can we, you know, get chapters and, and setting deadlines? Um, and and the whole process, I think, you know, worked. I, I think if we had started, you know, with a with a vision for what we wanted for the book, I think it would look a lot like what we created. You know, we were working with this wonderful kind of coalition of the willing um, that that emerged organically. But the final product, I think, was, you know, and this is really a tribute to how uh, insightful and hardworking the individual authors who contributed to it were. The final product was was what I would have hoped for if you had just said, you know, imagine a, a book you'd want to read about the politics of the MCU yourself.
3: And I would just throw one last one last bit into that is that, yeah, Nick didn't just carry the water. So um, he he's also you know has has a voluminous understanding of the details of the MCU. So that um, he was always able to converse with all of our writers um, about you know plot points and and com- components, and of course taking a, a ten thousand foot look also at what we were doing. But since this started just before the pandemic, one of the interesting things that almost all of our authors said to us um, was, this was a great opportunity to sort of watch these movies with my family. It gave me something to do as we were all despairing about whether we would live through Mm -hmm. COVID-19 and, and that they really enjoyed being able to write about this sort of massive um, cinematic Universe, uh, because it was also, you know, a way to think about something other than COVID nineteen at the time, um, so that we had a lot of willing participants in, in part because there was a, a kind of enjoyment that people had in just engaging with the MCU and thinking about it.
1: Well, I would say is I opened it up and looked at the contributor list. Uh, first of all, I was surprised. I think you have some people there that I really think might be reluctant to engage in this kind of conversation, and it's an impressive it's an impressive list of scholars. Second, I think I see a lot of uh, new books in political science influence that some of these people are in fact. Uh, have recent books, and they've been interviewed mostly by Lily because she does more of the American politics books. So I I I think it's interesting when we talk about what does it mean to lose conferences, what does it mean to lose these kinds of conversations, what does it mean in a post Musk Twitter? What where do we go to have we to have that conversation to know something just happened? Where do we talk about it? So I think that's really interesting. I want to turn to the chapters that each of you contributed, since we're talking about the terrific diversity. You both come out of very, very methodol- methodological different traditions and interests. Um, we'll start with you, Lily. Your chapter is called Nostalgia, Nationalism, and Marvel Superheroes. And and you argue that the MCU has threaded together a, a kind of self-connected nostalgia but then also weaving narratives into the narratives of a variety of these kind of nostalgic longings. And those nostalgic longings reflect these different periods of American history, politics, and culture that we've been experiencing since they started making these films and TV shows. So tell us a little bit about your chapter, what you're arguing, um, and, and why it's so important.
3: Well, again, I think that if you look at at these films and television shows um, sort of and you and you sort of thread them together, that there is not only a construction of a kind of nostalgic longing within the MCU um, because of the connection to past narrative constructions within the MCU so that while you're watching one film or one television show, you're actually also thinking about some of the things that transpired in other films or television shows that are part of this universe so that there is a a sort of connected nostalgia that you're able to, that the MCU is able to build on um, for itself. It also into that um, inserts periods of time that we often reference, particularly in the United States, as periods of heroic capacity. Um, you know, the defeat of, of Nazism and Hitler in World War II, where Captain America has come in. Um, and the stories around Captain America are present, um and you also see sort of the the Tony Stark referencing back to his father, and we see images of his father in a variety of ways, thinking about building um great things um and so you have in in the in the films in particular, you have this embedded kind of nostalgic yearning for the capacity of the United States to defeat, to create, to, um, you know, all the things that we often think about um, as symbolic characteristics of this country are embedded within the, the sort of threads of that narrative. Um, And then that is, that is sort of, connected to, again, a kind of what I refer to as a soft nationalism, um, in part because you have this, and it's oftentimes the origin story of of any particular superhero um, chunk any, any of the films or television shows is there some bad person who comes along and disrupts the status quo. And the job of the superhero is to return us to the time before baddie showed up. Um, And that is a kind of nationalism as well as nostalgia. Like we want to be the Asgard. We once were, we want to be the uh, United States that defeated Hitler um and so all of that is kind of embedded within the the superhero narratives as in general um and so then you sort of just have the the context of what a superhero is and what their their job often is in these narratives which is to sort of restore order um, not necessarily pushing it forward, but to restore order. Um, and I think that is where you see this kind of combination of nationalism and nostalgia within superheroic narratives.
1: Now, and you reference in the chapter that, I mean, this can, you know, we can put this in the context of World War II and people can agree, but we can also put it in the context of something like Make America Great. Again. again and mm-hmm. that restoring of order implies a certain kind of nationalism that needs to be more critically interrogated w- what are the threats it, in the MCU universe to the order
3: um well i mean and, and
1: some and a couple of examples you you have some examples in the chapter i know there's a million but
3: <laughs> yeah i mean obviously particularly in phases 1 through 3 you have the the sort of arc of the avenger story which is essentially thanos's quest to essentially eliminate half of the beings in the universe and so thanos wants to reestablish a kind of order that you know in a certain sense is in context of understanding environmental problems um that there are too many people that there are too many beings in the universe and it needs to be less in in fact, it needs to be half, um, but that's a, it's, you know, that's a kind of problematic way of going about it because then you just kill off half the things that exist. Um, and so you have that, that arc in, in the Avengers storyline. Um, and then, you know, the, the example that I pull out that I really like a lot because it's just so straightforward and easy is what happens in Thor Ragnarok. Um, and that you have, you know, you have sort of life is great in Asgard um, and then Odin dies and Hela comes back and she had been displaced. So she wants to claim her throne. Um, And in so doing, you know, she's got to kill a bunch of people and raise the dead. Um, And the Asgardians aren't crazy about her rule because it's a little bit heavy handed. Um, So, you know, Thor, Thor, excuse me, Thor and Valkyrie and a few others have to come along and Loki have to come along and kind of you know set things right. But in the process of setting things right, they of course have to destroy Asgard, um, but not the Asgardians. Uh, and and so that's again, this is a sort of in one snippet in Thor Ragnarok, you have that same narrative that you see over the course of a number of films in terms of the Avengers films themselves.
1: Nick, when when Lily finished a draft did she send it to you like is, uh, and 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 how did it work with the other authors as well
2: so lily and i sort of worked together we we you know asked authors to devise their own sort of question and answer you know if it was a, a and really focus on their own area of expertise so that we could get the best out of each of our contributors um, they brought chapters to us and we actually held a mini conference via zoom um, where where contributors presented their chapters got feedback from the group, then uh, Lily and I gave feedback on each chapter to the authors, um, and that's where as Lily notes, you know, my role was often the the uh, I guess Marvel scold where I would I would say, oh no, no, that's not quite right, uh, Lily, you forgot that Korg was there in the final battle as well, uh, <laughs> um, but we would give our our substantive feedback to the authors and then let them come back to us. We really tried to. Um, give, uh, you know, speaking of being heavy handed, we tried not to be hella in this situation, and then <laughs> give our suggestions to our authors, uh, but let them ultimately, you know, um, come back and make the, the strongest argument that they could. Um, you know, I, I, I'm i sure I gave Lily feedback on her work. I know she gave me feedback on mine. Um, and it was always just wonderful. I, I you know, will say that working with this group of authors was, I don't mind, you know, I don't mind them saying this. I hope they're listening uh, to hear me say what a pleasure it was to work with all of them. We debated. We had, you know, there were authors where where we had back and forths. And um, and I think ultimately everyone's understanding and everyone's, uh, you know, every chapter was better for it. And my own understanding of the underlying political science and political theory uh, and, and the, the Marvel cinema was better for it.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Nick, your piece, which is called government is the bad guy, question mark. And there you're interrogating what message MCU sends about the US government, about the politicians, the military, intelligence officers, and and other government workers, like police officers and firefighters. You had help from three research assistants, Preston Massey, Christina Zhang, and Harry Wang. And you all watched 23 films. and you identified and coded every scene that depicted the U.S. government. Now, we have like lots of listeners who love to know how the sausage is made. So let's like start with the method, methods and how you set that up. And then let's talk about what, what you found in this analysis.
2: Sure. So um, the research question, I, I think kind of like Lily, I was starting with, one of the big important critiques of not just Marvel cinema, but superhero fiction as a genre. Um, and another one of those critiques is um, that it often kind of uses the government as a foil. You know, if, if the government could solve problems, we wouldn't need superheroes. So the problems in superhero fiction, the criticism goes, are often things that belittle government by saying government's too small to do this or too incompetent to do this or too corrupt to do this. Um, and, and we need, you know, a small number of superpower individuals. And, and so this is a, this is a common criticism of superhero fiction. And my question was like, is that ac- Is that an accurate criticism of Marvel set of, of Marvel studios and the MCU? Um, so I worked with, uh, three research assistants. Um, and we, I, I had them watch every MCU film at the time, which was the first 23 films in phases one, two, and three. Um, in its entirety, and every time the U.S. government appeared on the screen, a depiction of the U.S. government had them pause it and mark the time and record who was present, you know, and what they were doing and whether they were depicted positively or negatively in that scene. And so we created a list of every scene in the MCU, which the uh, uh, government, U.S. government is represented uh, on screen. We didn't count title characters. So if you watch, you know, Captain America, well, he's created by the U.S. government. Um, and and you know he works for the U.S. government. We don't count every moment he's on screen, but not counting the title characters, um, we we think you know people experience a film through the eyes of the the main characters. Um, okay, so so not counting the main characters, who who is you? How are U.S. government institutions and people depicted on screen? And is it positive or is it negative? Um, and and so that was the research question. I will say. Um, And I I don't want to speak for um, Harry and Christina and Preston, but having done some of the coding myself, it was the least fun I have ever had watching a Marvel movie. Um, (laughs) So I think when a lot of people hear, oh, you're a researcher and you watch Marvel movies, they imagine that it's, you know, popcorn with the kids. In the case of this sort of quantitative exercise, it was just a lot of pausing, taking notes, unpausing uh, uh, repeat, repeat, repeat hours and hours on end. So, so, um, um, you know, we, we, but at the end, we had this amazing data set where we have, you know, a data set containing every scene depicting US government in the MCU. And then we could ask these questions. Is it positive? Is it negative? Um, um, and just, you know, how much of this is really about the government in the first place? So,
1: Nick, why does it matter how the MCU portrays the US government? Does it Matter if we watch West Wing or Wag the Dog. (laughs)
2: Um, Well, so uh, one of the starting points for my work on this project was research that goes back to the 1970s, when political scientists were initially worried that negative depictions of the U.S. government could actually promote uh, uh, cynicism and disengagement from politics. And and this was a you know a live conversation in media studies and communications and political science for, for decades. Um, And still continues to this day. I mean, people research, you know, uh, how do negative versus positive campaign ads ultimately affect, you know, do they drive citizens away from the entire process? Um, And so so I wanted to start with depictions of the U.S. government in in this cinematic universe and see whether they were positive or negative, Um, because in principle, I mean, if, if. you, you could imagine, you know, a world where people make superhero fiction and they just always use the government as a foil. It would be very lazy storytelling, but it's definitely something you could do. All oh, the government's the bad guy, you know, um, uh, conspiring against the heroes and they always have to get around the government or something like this. Um, and so I would, you know, if, if that was what we found, we might worry that, you know, gosh, this thing is, is you know, really potentially turning people off from politics, which is something that political scientists often want people to think and talk and engage with politics and see government as something that they can be a part of or they can influence. On the flip side, you might also worry that if every film was, you know, uh, stars and stripes, yay U.S. government, we might have a situation where you would look at this body of work and say, this is kind of propaganda almost. This is, you know, giving, uh, you know, a, a, a two celebrationist account. Um, and so, so I was coming at it sort of wondering, you know, what exactly is going on here? And, you know, uh, I, I think my interest in this was driven, too, by the fact that, like, I could point to an individual movie, you know, that has a mostly negative depiction of the government. So think the first Hulk movie that Marvel Studios made. It's Edward Norton playing Bruce Banner. Um, and he spends the entire money, movie running from the U.S. government, which is trying to catch him uh, because he's turning into Hulk. My question is, is that normal for the MCU? Because, you know, this isn't just one movie. This is at the time 23, now 31 films. Um, you know, are they all like this? And and so as we started to collect these data, we found really interesting. First of all, government is on the screen a lot in the MCU. So a really large percentage of the time that you're watching a Marvel, an MCU film, um, you're seeing some representation of the U.S. government on the screen. So I was really surprised to find that 21% of the total screen time of the first 23 films, there is some representation of the U.S. government on the screen. A government official, someone from the military, some representation of the U.S. government is on the screen. So that's actually a lot of sort of passive information that viewers are taking in. Um, but what I found is that slightly more often the representation is positive. It's someone there who's trying to work with the heroes or trying to help the heroes. There are negative representations. Obviously there are lots of you know, so so the the first Hulk movie with Edward, Edward Norton was was, you know, a case where the vast majority of the representations of them were negative. But on balance, taken as a whole, um the MCU is, you know, slightly more positive than negative. It's it's, you know, uh uh not celebrationist, it's not propaganda um, but it's also not just pure cynicism. Um, and so the character I often point to as sort of embodying this is uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Phil Colson. So Agent Colson in the first Thor movie is kind of pursuing the protagonist. Uh, Thor's lost his hammer on Earth. He's no longer worthy. He's trying to get it back. He's trying to become worthy again. And Agent Colson, on behalf of S.H.I.E.L.D. is kind of pursuing the, the protagonist, um, Jane and Thor, uh, and Dr. Selvig as they try to retrieve this hammer and kind of thwarting them along the way. But in the very end, realizes, oh, these are the good guys. And all of a sudden, Agent Coulson at the very end is, is admiring and is there to help. Then we fast forward in the Avengers film, and throughout the film, Agent Coulson is on the side of the heroes. He can't always save the day. He's not always powerful enough to defeat the villains. But he is trying to help, and he even goes so far as to apparently lay down his life to save the protagonists. Um, we, we would be led to believe on screen. And so that I think, so Coulson sort of embodies, I think that's a pretty good summary of the MCU's take on US government. It's, it's not your classic corrupt or powerless. It's often in the way or, or, or you know, mistakenly opposing the heroes. Um, and it's often helping the heroes, sometimes in uh, you know, profoundly self-sacrificing ways. So I walked away saying, There's, this is a much more complicated fictional universe than any kind of reductionist concern you might have about superhero fiction as a whole. Um, um, you know, this is, this is not um, a superhero uh, story that, that you can easily pigeonhole and say, um, they're, they're just doing government, um, um, you know, they're, they're just making government the bad guy. Um, to, to move the story along.
1: Nick, so you're not worried about a spiral of cynicism. Is there, is there anything else that you that you think will, from MCU, impact in particular the youth that are watching this and how they frame government and think about government? Or is this a kind of a complex enough version of government that, that it's not upsetting to you?
2: I would always love for the MCU to do more and any, you know, any entertainment media product um, to do more to encourage people to think carefully and systematically about their place in society. Um, One uh, one bright spot I saw recently, and I I don't think a lot of people even, um, you know, saw this or remember it, is there was actually a speech at the end of the Disney Plus streaming show, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, the, the big finale is the main character, Falcon, who's now become Captain America, uh, making a speech about the importance of descriptive representation, a topic that political scientists care deeply about. And and he, you know, tells people a big problem with the way the world is today is that the people in charge are so different from the people they're supposed to represent. Um, and so so I, I you know, my my message, if I were talking to Kevin Feige, you know, slash William Shakespeare. I would say uh, more, please, more of this. You know, um, I, I think it's good that the MCU is not just trashing government um, because I think it's bad to discourage people from um, engaging in politics and, and thinking about collective action as a way to solve their problems. Um, but there's always room for an entertainment franchise to kind of um, sneak more vegetables in with, with the, the meal, if that makes sense. Uh, I think the MCU is doing a lot of that, actually, in phase four, which just wrapped up with sort of happens after our book, uh, um, I think you're seeing more and more of this sneaking into vegetables. And and yeah, that's my message to, to Marvel Studios is more please.
1: Well, it's a great segue because um, uh, the senior uh, editorial assistant on this podcast, uh, at least the uh, Philadelphia version of it is Daniela Campos. And she actually texted me this question this morning uh, and she wrote me So one of the critical lenses that uh, the two of you mention is regarding representation. Who gets depicted as a hero and villain can impact how audiences view identity groups in our world today. Uh, Representation in the MCU has increased while there has been an uproar in real life for better representation positions of power. What are your thoughts on the rise of representation within political offices? Has pop culture like the MCU played a role in holding these spaces accountable? And before we answer her more complicated question, I mean, you point out in the book that there's been a lot of evolution in terms of identity in the MCU, the heroes, the villains, and the victims. So in answering Daniela's question, um, maybe we can sort of back up just a little bit and just talk about how Marvel started and where they are right now. Um, But, you know, what, what... what what has Marvel to say about representation, and what effect does it have? Um, Lily, you want to start?
3: <laughs> sure. the The largest section of the book um, is actually um, paying attention to these questions. The the chapters. Um, are looking at masculinity and femininity in terms of the characters themselves. It's looking at, you know, sort of the um, the absence of LGBTQ characters, even though that promise has been made um, and the comic books themselves have much more of that representation than the MCU does. Um, and so there's a lot that we pay attention to as editors and our authors really work fascinated by in terms of thinking about these issues. Um, So I would, I would start there um, and that at the same time you do see the evolution um, from the beginning of the MCU, which is Iron Man um, in the sort of immediate post nine 11 period, or more specifically post nine 11 period um, and how uh uh tony stark was portrayed as you know playboy womanizer um making homophobic jokes um and sexist jokes uh and and again there's a class component to this cuz he's a super wealthy dude um, white dude um, and and so that's to some degree where the MCU starts. And then you have not only Tony Stark's character evolving over the course of the first three phases of the MCU, but you then also have integration of whole films like Black Panther. Um, and so, and we talk about this and our authors talk about this. It's not just who's in front of the camera, but it's also who is behind the camera, who's writing, um, the stories, who's doing the cinematography, who's doing the costuming, um, that, that becomes a part of the question of representation and engagement with diverse, um, cast crews, um, and a, a lot of what we've been seeing in terms of Hollywood broadly constructed, um, sort of acknowledging limitations that have often been there in terms of who is working in the entertainment industry and, and sort of changing some of that um, or at least pursuing changes in, in that. So I'm going to hand it over to Nick at this point.
2: I think I would just add that um, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen in the coming phases of Marvel Studios, you know, um, as Lily points out the, uh, you know, if we were to watch phase one of the MCU, sort of the first few years of Marvel Studios films, they're almost all films about white guys. and if you fast well, forward they, they have to victims who
1: are not white guys, like it's that's right. It's the, and you do such a great job in the book of saying that this really matters a ton. It's, it's who's a villain, who's a victim and who right. saves the day. And it's that interplay between the three that I think is what makes this part of the book to me. So fascinating that it's not just about the superheroes because in some ways, the supremacy of white dudes depends upon the fact that the victims are women or people of color or the villain is a woman or a person of color. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Nick, but it's no, so no. well done in the book.
2: Oh, uh, and thank you for that. And, and I agree that that's, I think, you know, sort of crucial. And you can go back, you know, in time and look at you know, comic books from the start of the 20th century. And the dichotomy, you know, the racial and gender dynamics are really, really stark, painful. Um, you know, heroes are white, they're men, women are, are, you know, um, you know, portrayed in, in ways that just seem astoundingly sexist and, modernize and um And, uh, and villains are often people of color and, and often foreign and, and this is, you know, um, you know, a, uh, a problem with the superhero genre. Uh, I think as a whole, I can't speak to other forms of, you know, fiction and entertainment at the time, but if you're a fan of superhero fiction, you just have to live with this, that it comes from a place that um, I think most of us are not proud of today. But if you fast forward today, if you were to walk into a comic book shop, you know, tomorrow and pick out, you know, 10 Marvel comics, I think I, I would bet that I'd be proud of what you were looking at. And I would say this is not that this is a genre and a company and a sort of creative endeavor that has um, changed for the better, that has started to see the problems that existed before and take big steps to correct them, uh, both in, you know, who's on the page and who's uh, uh, who's creating that material. Um, can, can, sorry. Sorry to interrupt please.
1: you. So. As you're talking, I'm just thinking about queerness, and I'm also thinking about what you said earlier in the discussion about how they have to walk a very fine line in terms of w- not alienating their markets, because this is this is art, and but it's also commercial art. That's and like- so it, it highly depends on not offending an, an entire market, say China or many other countries where queerness is an issue there's other issues too, but I'll just pick this one out. W- what has Marvel done? How comfortable have they been with that kind of um, portrayal of of gender?
2: I, I mean, I think this is a key difference between print comics and cinema. Um, you know, in print comics today, you're going to find, I think, um, you know, moderate to robust queer representation. You know, you can pick up comics and see, you know, Wiccan and Hulkling, you can see America Chavez, you know, there are lots of, but when you, but I think the market for comic books is much, much smaller. It's much, much different. When you're talking about, you know, movies where the goal is, this sounds crazy to say out loud. The goal is to make like $700 million uh, (laughs) on a single film. Um, There, I think these kinds of constraints uh, or perceived constraints bite a lot harder. I think I think probably Marvel comics writers, um, you know, feel or are a lot freer to talk about sexual identity in inclusive ways than people, you know, than than people who create Marvel Studios. I, for one, I mean, I don't mind mind saying, you know, I was really disappointed because uh, in Thor: Love and Thunder, which was a movie that was billed as, you know, hopefully Marvel Studios, um, you know, sort of giving significant representation to non-straight characters. Um, and it just didn't happen. There were maybe, you know, you know, I'm someone who counts screen time. Uh, there were maybe 10 total seconds of, you know, unambiguously non straight representation on screen. Now I loved them. Don't get me wrong. Um, um, the characters were great. The moments were great. But I think there are people who would look at that and say that, you know, it, you know, that is probably a result of the differing business environments of comics and cinema. Now, now I could also push back on that and say, you know, the, on the cinematic side, there seems to be forward movement, but, 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 you know, I was really disappointed in 2022 when I said it's forward movement, but it's, it's glacial uh, at this stage. So, so as long as I'm making requests of Marvel Studios, I'll say, uh, again, more please. A lot more. (laughs) Well, it
1: also seems that in terms of marketing and and the way uh, you distribute art that is in comic book form or art that is downloaded by an individual on a streaming service, that should leave opportunity for there to be more choice. In other words, if they care about making money, they can still make money because there are audiences that will seek out, pay for this content. The issue seems to be that because this is a leviathan, because this is a global conversation, because this is at the size that you point out throughout the book with statistics and reach, and it's remarkable. I was overwhelmed by the numbers in the book. That means there has to be a mean, and it seems like that's both the power and the problem of of Marvel. So if you can't talk about queerness because you can't show it you think and make money in a particular place, or you're being very, very careful about not saying that people in Tibet exist—that that that's just China, yeah. right? Yeah. Then, then you've you've you. Whereas you don't need to do that in the comic book because people can just ban that one book. Um, it's a very interesting question as to whether or not there is any um, emancipatory potential in Marvel in opening up audiences, as you said earlier, to get Nick citizens, subjects to think of their part in political activity and with the emphasis on the superhero. And then as you're arguing the government, that role for the person isn't quite as defined. And I wonder how that plays out.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say in a certain sense, this is this is part of the difficulty with uh, the superhero genre in general. Because the people who are are represented as superheroes are superpowered. So they are disconnected from us in this very real way. And even those who don't have technically superpowers like <clears throat> um, Black Widow um, or even you know Tony Stark, he has a suit that he made, but he himself does not have superpowers if he's not in the suit. Um, And that these people, not only are they, you know, presented with these powers that are way different than like the three of us have in our lives, um, in our capacities, uh, that you also have them presented in these incredibly physical forms. Um, that you know, at a certain point, looks almost like drawn in the comic books themselves, um, and so there's there is this sort of tension um, with regard to what we see on the screen in terms of these capacities and powers um, that the citizen watcher, the audience, is can admire and we can sort of long for, but that that we are. We are not superheroes ourselves.
1: Um, you've anticipated my last question is which is when's volume two coming? Um, so you're working on this, and as you said earlier, there'll be a little bit more of a focus, perhaps on foreign policy, on the implications for um, uh, what this has to say about uh, the the world systems. What are you both individually working on right now? And, um, and, and, and then we'll close with your favorite brick and mortar bookstores to come buy this incredible volume.
2: Nick, what are you working on? (laughs) I've been, so, so I've been focusing on recruiting and uh, lining up scholars to participate in volume two. We're hoping to draft it, have a conference, and um, sort of get it under completed uh, by the end of the you know sort of summer. And the reason we're trying to move fast is that Marvel Studios moves fast. So just since we wrapped work on this book and got it in our hands, uh, uh, Marvel Studios completed another two-year phase of seven films and and uh, multiple streaming shows. So we have to move quickly uh, uh, to keep up. My own contribution, uh, and this is really still nascent, is I'm trying to think about what is the right yardstick to judge this genre, and this is something that's sort of been a thread through a lot of the conversations Lily and I have have had, and a lot of the com- or a lot of the chapters in Volume One. Um, you know, is it just entertainment? Can we give it a pass because it's just entertainment? It's just a superhero movie, or should we hold it to really high standards because they have such great power as a media juggernaut? Um, should we hold it to really high standards and what should those be? And so that's as far as I've gotten. If there's a smart political theorist out there listening to this, who can help me make sense of this question, I would be so grateful to hear from you. Um, But I, I, you know, there's a lot of really interesting content in phase four in the last two years. So, so uh, it's still up in the air. What I'll ultimately contribute. Uh,
1: Nick, I've never met you until this podcast this morning, but uh, what I would say just from what you wrote in this book is that you are really bothered by the effect these films have on people. And you cite really interesting data about what happens when you show a person a particular film and the effect it then has on what they will say about power, about gender. So I I, I think you're paying enormous attention to the, the social psychological part of this, and, and the real impact that it, it has on people. Um, so I don't know. I think that that's, I I think you're
2: worried. No, you're you, you, uh, I think perfectly diagnosed what's kind of driving me here. Um, um, you know, I love this content. I'm a fan, I'm a consumer. I've been a Marvel fan since 1991 when I first encountered it. And I can tell you all about that experience some other time, but, uh, I I don't, I, I would say, um, you know as a fan i want to see this genre um do good things in the world i mean it's a genre that imparts in you that i mean that that you know to its core is uh, a combination of a power fantasy and a moral fantasy that's what makes uh us superhero fiction so appealing i think is it's not just seeing the big guy beat up the the bad guy it's thinking about what morality means in this context. And so I think maybe my, my orientation to this project is just an extension of what Marvel, you know, comics and, and Marvel films have taught me, which is that, uh, um, you know, with great power.
1: Comes great responsibility. responsibility. <laughs> Lily, where, what, what are you doing on this project?
3: Um, where are you? I I am also with Nick, as we're, and we're trying to sort out like who's contributing what and where, and if there are holes that potentially need to be filled. Um, but one of the things that I noticed as we were working on the first book and so many people were talking about the various origin stories of many of the superheroes is that there's an interesting bifurcation in terms of origin stories for the male characters and origin stories for the female characters. And one of the things that I noticed in terms of that bifurcation is that the female characters, when they do sort of get their superpowers, there's often a huge chunk of information that they do not have. Um, whereas the male characters when they get their superhero powers they sort of have to figure out how to deal with them but they're not necessarily missing knowledge um, and I found that this kind of this, this sort of um, two way two options that that we had presented means that the, the sort of female characters are learning not only about their powers but also they're kind of blindsided um, in terms of the context in which they find themselves using their powers. Uh, and it's an interesting kind of one hand tied behind the back narrative construction that I want to see if the, it consistently plays out in the later phases as well, um, as we see sort of some more female superheroes coming forward that um and that they have some of these super p- superpowers themselves. Um are they also being blindsided because they don't have clear knowledge? I mean this is clearly the case in the way that Captain Marvel is set up. Um but it's not just her. Uh and I found it more and more interesting as I was reading through people's chapters and thinking about the origin stories. So if I uh, if if that's where my thinking takes me, that's probably where I'm going to go.
1: Favorite book and brick and mortar bookstores for people. We will have links uh, in the show notes where you can get this on bookshop.org, but
3: you might also just be walking around. So favorites, I, I did a reading a couple weeks ago at Boswell Bookstore in Milwaukee, and I know they have copies of the book there. Um, <clears throat> and I think I signed one or two just in general um, while after the reading. So you can wander into Boswell Bookstore and pick up a copy of The Politics of the MCU if you happen to be in Milwaukee. Nick?
2: Um, I'll add The Regulator Bookstore in Durham. Um if it's not sold out, uh uh should have it. And um we're currently working on getting physical copies in my local comic shop, Ultimate Comics in Durham. So put a part for them as well.
1: Well, I've been to the regulator and wow, it's a great bookstore. So um I hope it's not sold out there. Um Nick Carnes, Lily Gorin, thank you both very much for joining us today. It was a great conversation. This was A discussion of the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, published by University Press of Kansas in 2023. Thank you both so much for joining me today.
3: Thank you, Susan. This is great. Thanks.